Good morning. My name is Rob. In case you don't know me, I'm the senior pastor, and I have the privilege of opening the Bible with you. You can turn your Bibles with me. We're looking at 1 Kings chapter 18, and uh, we're continuing along in the story of Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 18. As I think about the setup for this story in Elijah's uh, life, it, it made me think about watching that that overconfident individual come face to face with reality. They're overconfident in their abilities, and then they hit that wall called reality. And we've seen that happen. We've seen that that cocksure high school athlete, you know, they're the big fish in the little pond, and then they go off to college, right? Or, or the collegiate athlete, even a Heisman Trophy winner, who then goes into the world of pro sports, so you have this overconfident individual hitting reality. Uh, I, I recently uh, came across this, this idea of, in the world of business. It's called the, the uh, Peter Principle. It's a concept in management. And, and basically, the observation was this, that, that people in a hierarchy tend to rise to their level of incompetence. So you have a person... They do a pretty good job at this lower level. They get to the higher level in the organization, and everyone around them can see it but themselves. They just can't do the job. They, they don't have the skill set for it. The scripture tells us that an overconfident person will meet reality. It says even the mighty will fall. Even the well-known will be remembered as a has-been. Proverbs says this, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And that's really the next part of our story in Elijah. You see, God is going to send Elijah to call upon Ahab and the prophets of Baal to enter into a great contest. In fact, this is God versus Baal in this story. And they're a little dim-witted. They actually think that this is a contest. It's a mismatch of epic proportions but as they come together, I think we're going to find that God's purposes are much bigger than just simply delivering the knockout blow. Because God always has greater purposes in this world than just showing that he's in control. He already knows that, right? So we're going to pick up. Let's dust off the cobwebs a little bit and get back into the story. Now remember what God's been doing in Elijah's life. He's been preparing him. First, he took him to that desolate place called Kareth. And that was where God gave Elijah his odd provisions. He then moved him to that location that was eight miles south of where Jezebel was from, her hometown, her stomping grounds, Zarephath. And it was there that Elijah meets this widow and her son. And he's able to provide for them in, in really remarkable ways. But here in chapter 18 of verse Kings, he receives his new marching orders. Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Now, I want to summarize verses 2 through 16 for you. Uh, we're going to see some significant things now from the Israelite perspective. First, we, we, we learned how desperate this situation is, this drought situation. Ahab calls one of his key officials, Obadiah, and he says, we need to go and search the land for 
grass. In verse 5, he says it like this, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. Now my observation of Ahab is this, that he, he still believes in some way in his arrogance that he can manage this God-created disaster. So he's not living with the Peter principle, he's living with the God principle. And this is the God principle. Any leader who believes he or she can outmaneuver God is sadly mistaken. It's not going to happen. And we also learn in this, these verses that Ahab has been pursuing Elijah relentlessly. You see, Obadiah goes out, he's searching for this grass, he, he runs into Elijah And he tells him in verse 10, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. He hates Elijah. He wants to see the prophet come to ruin. Well, Elijah says, that's fine. It's actually time for me to have an encounter with this king. So he asks Obadiah to set up this arrangement. Now, A little background on Obadiah, he is not the prophet Obadiah that you see in the scriptures in the minor prophets. He is a faithful servant of the king. He does follow the Lord. We come to find out, actually, that he's been preserving the prophets while Jezebel has been going about killing the prophets. She's been bloodthirsty for them. And he's also adopted somewhat of a defeatist attitude. He's afraid that if he introduces Elijah to Ahab, that God will somehow trick him in the situation. He'll remove Elijah, and Ahab will be left to suffer the consequences. But Elijah reassures this man of God. He says, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. And that gives Obadiah the confidence to go and to arrange the meeting. Let me slow it, the story down a little bit now. Uh, if you're honest with yourself and with others in this room, how many of you grew up and watched pro wrestling? Just a, thank you for confidently raising your hand. <laughs> this is my favorite service now. Because I did too. I loved watching pro wrestling. And... You know, one of the things that I loved growing up watching pro wrestling was the, the pre-fight smackdown, uh, smack talk. You remember that, right? You'd have like Hollywood Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage, and you'd be like, oh yeah, brother, we're about to do this tonight, and we're going to be swinging off the ropes, and this is going to be a battle of epic proportion. And you know, my little kid self is just bouncing off the couch upon my brother. Can't wait for the fight. All the intense stares, the flexing of muscles, it reminds me of this dialogue that's just about to happen between Ahab and Elijah. Now, I may be elaborating a little bit, but you catch my point. So pick up with verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table, 
So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Now, what is mystifying in this exchange is you have this exchange of accusations. Ahab calls Elijah the troubler, and Elijah, he returns the accusation. He says, no, you're the, you're the troubler. Now, any Bible reader who knows the background of the book of Joshua would think back to Joshua chapter 6 and 7, the story of Achan. Now, that's a very important story because in that story, you may recall Achan stole one of the items that the Lord said was banned. These were his things. You don't touch them. And in really a real way, they're, they're tainted. And, and Achan stole those things, and all of Israel called him the troubler because they suffered the curse. Now, what we learn from the story of Achan is this, that my personal sin has bigger ramifications than my own personal life. It's not just about me, myself, and I. I'm not an island unto myself. When I uh, sin against the Lord, there are ripple effects. It hurts other people. Well, think about the confusion in Ahab's mind right now. He's looking at Elijah and he's saying, Elijah, you're the troubler of Israel. It's because you just won't kind of get with the program. Here I am. I'm trying to expand Israel. I'm trying to get us in the league of nations around us. Why can't you just understand that, Elijah? You know what this tells us? It tells us that there is a great spiritual confusion in Israel right now. Ahab and the nation of Israel is struggling to answer three basic questions. Three questions that should be clear to this people who have seen the wonders of God, the signs of God, who had the scriptures. And they're asking these three questions. Who is God? What is true? And what helps people and and what hurts people? And I want to say this, whenever a society is asking these three questions, that place is spiritually confused, morally bankrupt. In fact, they've fallen off of their spiritual rocker. And don't we ask those questions? Who is God? Well, I like to think of God as, well, here's the thing. I didn't ask you what you think of God. I said, who is God? What is he like? What has he revealed about himself? Here's the thing. If God is a person, it doesn't matter how you like to think of him. He is what he is. Or what is truth? Well, your truth may be your truth, but my truth is my truth. Look up the definition of truth sometime. It is that which is in accordance with fact or reality. You can't have two realities running simultaneously alongside of one another. That just doesn't work. Or what helps people and what hurts people. And Oh, boy. We could talk about this for a long time. I mean, there's actually a nation in our world today that would say that a child under the age of 12 that's terminally ill could make a helpful decision of physician-assisted suicide if they believe that's best for them. You can't answer the basic fundamental questions of reality, of morality. Who is God? What is true? 
and what helps people and what hurts people. And here's what happens when you can't answer those questions. As we answer those questions differently, it will surely lead to a collision of worldviews. And that's what we see happening in this story. It is either God or it's Paul. Either God's in control of the drought or he's not. So Elijah challenges Ahab to a contest to set the record straight. Now the site of the contest is Mount Carmel. And the reason Mount Carmel is selected is because it's basically like a dividing line between the nation of Israel and this Phoenician territory. Now, many of the ancients in this day, they they thought of their gods as what you would call local deities. So, you know, Baal, he's he's mainly dominant and powerful in the region of where Jezebel was from. And of course, God or Yahweh, he's the God of Israel. But here's the thing, Elijah knows better. He knows what scripture says about God. The earth is the Lord's. He's not constrained by region or geography. He also, in setting up this contest, tells Ahab, listen, I need you to bring all of Israel to observe this. And what he means there is he's looking for the people of influence, the leaders of Israel who could then go back and see what, say what they've observed in this contest. So listen to the challenge that he, he sets up for the contest. That's verses 21 to 24. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even only I, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bowls be given to us and let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Now, these people are riding the fence. He, he tells them that they are limping along. They can't make a decision, either up or down, for God or for Baal. But here's a spiritual truth that you'll see in the Bible over and over again, and it's this, that no decision is actually a decision. You can't live in the land of limbo. In fact, when you're passively not deciding, you're actually actively making a decision. And as you look at this story, there really isn't a neutral position amongst these people. In fact, as you look at the state of the altars, and we'll see that in a little bit as we read, the altar that was dedicated to Baal is in perfect working order. The altar dedicated to the Lord in verse 30 is in disrepair. Elijah actually needs to add stones to that altar. What does that tell us about these people? Well, they're worshiping someone, but it's not the Lord. You know, Jesus said this. He said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And it's so true. That's spiritually true for your life. You're either making a decision for Jesus or 
you're making a decision against Jesus. Now, if you look at the contest from a secular perspective, and when I say secular, I mean you look at all the details and you leave God out of the equation. If you look at the contest from that perspective, this is a totally unfair contest for Elijah. I mean, it is one versus 850, all right? That's a big mismatch if you've ever seen a mismatch. You have 450 prophets of Baal. You have 400 prophets of Asherah, who was Baal's wife. They're all coming together against Elijah. Have you ever just put yourself in his shoes? Imagine what it must have felt like. I don't know about you, but... If I was standing up in front of all of Israel, I would hope against hope that as I say, who stands with the Lord, that there would at least be one leader that would raise their hand and say, oh, you know, (laughs) I've been watching this whole drought thing and it seems like God does what God says he's going to do. But no, it's crickets. Now here's the thing. When you are on God's side, the odds are never stacked against you. Now, Elijah learned this. He learned this at Kareth. He learned it at Zarephath. And I want to make things very crystal clear for you, believer, because there's so much confusion out there today, but we need a lot simpler. We need much simpler thinking in our lives. And here's the simple thinking that you can apply to your life henceforth forevermore. Always bet on God. 100% of the time, when you're coming to a crossroads, whether or not to do things God's way or do things the world's way, bet on God. When you're deciding, should I continue to walk with God or should I do things the way I want to do them, bet on God. Now, I know there are times, there are seasons in life where it is discouraging. It feels like 1 verses 850. And you're asking yourself the question, well, if I continue to do things God's way, am I really just signing up for the losing team? Well, here's the thing. God never loses. Never. And he never loses control even for a millisecond. The only way you can learn that, though, is by walking with him. Watching him work in your world following his ways. And the more you do that, the more you realize that his plans are far superior than any plans that I could ask for or think or imagine. He's so much smarter than me. He's so much grander than I am. Well, as Elijah sets up this challenge, he begins by giving the prophets of Baal the first attempt. We pick up at verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until evening, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. 
And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Anybody else like Elijah's sense of humor? I mean, boy, this guy's kind of rough, isn't he? Oh, oh, don't worry about it. Baal's just like that thinker statue right now. He's just pondering what he's going to do next. Gets even a little grody, doesn't he? He's like, oh, he's attending to the call of nature right now. He's off to the bathroom. Don't worry about it. Or, you know, Baal's been working so very hard for these last three and a half years. I know there hasn't been any rain, but he's still doing stuff right. He needed a vacation to Key West. Now, the prophets, they begin the contest overconfident. And then you notice they get confused and concerned, and then they just start getting crazy. They start cutting themselves, gashing themselves. The blood's flowing. Here's the thing. I don't want you to miss the bigger point of what's happening in the story. You see, Elijah is setting things up. He's challenging the religion of Baal to put their worldview, their assumptions, their presuppositions to the test. Now, here's the thing. A presupposition is that belief that we hold to that goes unquestioned or unchallenged. And and just like the prophets of this day, we also hold to presuppositions. There's truths that we hold to, whether they're really true or false, where we say, I just believe that's true. Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is already made up. But let me ask you, have you ever put those assumptions, those presuppositions to the test. What if you were to march around the altar of your worldview and and ask for it to produce fire in your life? Could it? Would it? You see, the fact is that people avoid testing their worldview because deep down inside, they know they worship a God who never shows up. And it's true. I mean, think about many of the worldviews today. The person that's trying to protect their life by building materials and wealth and income and that sort of thing. This person thinks to themselves, if I just acquire more, then I will be happier and I will be protected. But here's the thing. What does all of that wealth have to do with the time that your mom gets cancer? It can't do anything. Can you buy her health back? Or or the life that says, you know, I, I, I view that my time on this earth is very limited, so the best thing I can do for my life is to fill it up with experiences. Let me ask you, are experiences going to fix your rocky marriage or bring your wandering child back on the right path? Or or the pleasure seeker who says, the more pleasure I have in my life, the better my life will be. But here's the thing. Pleasure can become like drugs and alcohol. It's just a temporary fix. But it's not an ultimate solution. Or what about the religion of science? 
And I say that very intentionally. I mean, surely science knows all, sees all, controls all. Now, I am not anti-science. I am a biology major. I believe in science. But I know what science can do, and I know what science can't do. One thing that science can't do is disprove God. It doesn't have the ability to do that. It is a philosophical question. I'm bringing facts and concepts together, and I'm saying either there's enough there to convince me or there is not. Science is a method. It's a tool. We use it and we learn from it. It's no more in control than that lifeless statue that the ancients in Elijah's day bowed down to. You can march around the altar of science all you want, but it's never going to produce fire. Because science can't give you heaven. It might be able to prolong earth, might, but it can never take you beyond to heaven. You see, what we learn from this story is any kind of false worldview that we hold to is ultimately just dead. It's lifeless. It can't produce real transcendental things for us. But the big question we need to ask ourselves this morning as we think about it is then, what can the living God do? Now look at the story in verse 30. Elijah sets up this very dramatic presentation. It says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Now notice that Elijah, once again, is loading the dice against God. It's 850 verses 1. And now he's basically saying to all of the spectators, I dare you to accuse me of cheating. I dare you to. I dare you to suggest that somehow this just spontaneously combusted or that I got here a little ahead of time and covered everything with oil. I dare you to suggest that. And then he prays this beautiful prayer. Verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all of these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. I love this prayer. On one end, you you look at the, the setup It's so dramatic. He's pouring water all over the offering. And then the prayer is very undramatic. It's just clear, 
straightforward, simple requests. He's not dancing around the altar, whipping himself up into a frenzy, cutting himself and bleeding all over the place. Do you remember what Jesus said about prayer? He said, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for the Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then he goes on and he he gives us the Lord's Prayer. And, and just think about the Lord's Prayer. It's, it's just all of the, the plain, straightforward, basic things that you need in life. You don't have to play games with God. You don't need to cajole Him or, or coax Him into doing what you want Him to do. Jesus says He already knows what you need. And you must simply just ask. And look at the three simple requests He makes. These three simple requests answering the big questions that they've been asking, right? He says, remind the people that you are God. And that answers the question, who is God? The living God is God. Vindicate my prophetic ministry. They're asking the question, what is truth? And, and Elijah's saying, let them understand, thus saith the Lord. That I bring the very words of God, and i got to tell you, if you don't understand that this book is that for us today, you're really missing out on what is truth. And then that question, what hurts people and what helps people? Lord, let them see that the greatest good that they could bring into their world is to turn their hearts back to you. That's repentance. Do you want to know what will really help you in this world? Do things God's way. It's not the easiest sort of life possible, but I do believe it's the best sort of life possible. It will bring about true flourishing in your world. There's no confusion there. Now, as you look at this prayer, the, the next part is awesome. It's like Elijah just says amen after saying this very terse prayer. And then verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. So it's like amen and then boom, everything just explodes. Now, what I love about the presentation of miracles in the Bible is that you get like this much text when God shows up in miraculous ways. It's almost as if the Bible's saying, oh, and by the way, you know that thing that God said he was going to do, he did it. You know, like between the, the reality when he was managing all of the cosmos and omnisciently knowing what's on the heart of every human being. It's as if the Bible is saying this to us. When God shows up in these ways, for God, it is no big deal. Now, we look at the story and we think to ourselves, oh boy, I wish God would show up like this in my life. If God would just like rain down fire on an altar, then, you know, I would just be clear. This is all get up, right? I would just know. But here's the thing. God's like done way bigger things than this, you know, like this whole creation thing, creato ex nihilo, the fact that we have a universe that's so vast beyond our understanding and imagination, and he just spoke that into existence. 
or the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which I can look back at and say, you know, very, very confidently, I know of no instance of someone saying, raised from the dead, and then someone just gets up and raises from the dead unless it's from the scriptures. Those are bigger miracles, church. And when you place your confidence in, in the God of miracles, not waiting for the lesser miracles, but by faith, walking with Him, you will see God move in your world in significant ways. Now these people, they needed this. They drifted so far from Him. And the story says that they marveled. They, they looked out and they said, the Lord, He is God. And, and they repented. And then they went and they slaughtered the prophets of Baal, which was a symbolic act of Israel turning back to the Lord. But let me just say this. What God does next proves that there's a bigger work at play in this story. And I want you to see it. And I want you to see a great characteristic of God. Let's read the last so many verses, 41 to 46. The text says, And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. And he said, Go again. Seven times. And at the seventh Time, he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. In a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. As you're looking at this whole story, uh, we, we could walk away and just say, isn't God in control? Isn't God powerful? And yes, absolutely, He is those things. But you also see a great quality, an attribute of God at play in this story. And it's the power of God's mercy. Now, mercy is the restraining ministry of God. Mercy is God's willingness to hold back from enforcing punishment even when we deserve it. Think about what Israel deserved. They deserved to be treated like the prophets of Baal or at least to have another three and a half more years of drought. But God's mercy is at work. The people repent, they turn back to him, and instead of giving them more drought, he brings the rain. It makes me think of that, that, that famous novel, Les Miserables, with Jean Valjean. And there's a, a beautiful picture of, of mercy in this story. If you know this story, Valjean was in prison for stealing bread for 20 years, and it was a grueling existence. He gets out of prison, and, and he has nothing. He's destitute. And he meets a, a, a priest, a bishop, Monsieur Muriel, who extends grace to him. He invites him in his home. He offers him a meal. Now, instead of <clears throat> being grateful for the 
display of grace and mercy that he's shown in that moment. Valjean instead steals the silver of the house. And he tries to go out and sell the silver, and he's caught by the police. They bring him back to the site of the crime because in this culture or in this time period, that was where, you know, really court happened right then and there. So they bring him before Monsieur Muriel, and his life's really in the balance. I mean, if Jean Valjean is brought back to prison, he spends the rest of his life in prison for a second offense. And this is a, as I said, grueling existence. But Monsieur Muriel surprises him. He says to the police officers, Oh, oh, you know, he forgot something else that I'd given him as well. He totally forgot the silver forks. I mean, those things will fetch you like 200 francs if you take those out and sell them. Here, make sure that you take the forks with you too. Now, the police officers, they're all looking on in suspicion. But the single act of mercy, it flips a switch in the heart of Jean Valjean. You see, he had developed this cynical outlook of the world. You just can't get ahead. There's no goodness in this world. It's just suffering. That's all that you're dealing with. But Monsieur Muriel, he, he gives him this gift, and not only does he give him the grace of uh, the mercy of not accusing him, but he adds to the gift, and that's what mercy does. You see, mercy takes people capable of stealing, and it enlarges their vision. Here in the case of Jean Valjean, he is seeing audacious kindness, and that becomes the key to freeing him from a prison of bitterness. Well, the same thing is true of God's mercy in our lives. He's willing to take our moral confusion and give us moral clarity. If we're lost, he's willing to help us find the way to the, the way of grace. In fact, he went to the greatest lengths possible. He sent Jesus. And we know the gospel message. Jesus died in our place. Jesus rose again from the dead. But don't think that the cross means that God ignores or denies our sin. On the contrary, it stares courageously at our worst moments. And like Monsieur Muriel, it says, your story doesn't end here. Mercy is going to give you the opportunity for a new chapter. Can I ask you, have you allowed God's mercy to, switch the, to flip the switch in your heart? Have you reached out to him? Have you come to the realization that all the moments of your life are leading up to the moment where you can hear about Jesus, receive his blood-bought grace, be offered a new way to live? That's the whole story of the Bible. But you have to understand that mercy is not a forever offering of God. There's a time period where we walk the road of mercy, but eventually there is a crossroads in the road, and that crossroads is grace and judgment. On the one hand, you can choose the road of grace, which says, I will stand before God as judge with Jesus' righteousness covering me. Or you choose the road of judgment. You say, 
I will stand before God as judge, and I think I'm basically good enough. I'll be okay. Well, friend, don't go the way of judgment. Jesus came, Jesus died so that we wouldn't have to travel that road because none of us will stand before God and say that my works were good enough. In fact, I want to invite you this morning, each one of you, to bow your heads for a moment of silence before the Lord. While your head's bowed, I keep asking this question because I think it's so crucial right now in our lives, in our world. Does God have your attention? Does he have your attention? Give it to him right now. If, you've, if you know Jesus as your Savior, give him your attention by thanking him for his mercy this morning, right now in your seat. But if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, if you've never received the mercy of God, I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior and the risen Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I want you to come into my life at this moment. As best as I know how, I turn my life over to your care and your control. Amen. Amen. Well, the mercy of God is extraordinary, and there's so much more in the scriptures, but This week is the week where we live in light of that mercy. We leave here and we go and we tell others about the mercy of God. That's our call. We are ambassadors for Christ. So go and do that this week. God bless you guys.